What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining me today is Kayvon Afshari, and Kayvon and I go way back to growing up. I was probably best friends with his little brother in high school, and we have a lot to talk about, including his past experience in TV production, what he's up to today, uh, talking about launching your own side hustle, independent video production, and more. So Kayvon, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Brendan. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we already have a couple people watching this live, which is awesome. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Justine. And let's go ahead and dive in. So <clears throat> tell us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in media, politics, and TV. Uh, definitely. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that both my parents are from Iran. So I've had an interest in politics and foreign policy in the Middle East uh, for a long time, really, just because they're from uh, Iran. So uh, I went to McGill for my undergrad in Montreal, studied political science and Middle East studies, um, and wrote for the, and like edited the school newspaper also at that time. I was just always fascinated with writing, enjoyed writing a lot. And then after that, I realized I wanted to work as a journalist. My first job was actually at the New York Sun, which was a small, uh, pretty conservative newspaper in the city that eventually folded after I left. Um, and then... Uh, I kind of mixed that with an interest in video production and got a job at New York One after that, which people in New York will know is like a local 24-hour New York City station. Um, that, and I was kind of still finding my way at that time. Uh, I knew that it wasn't local news in particular that I, was, that I wanted to focus on, but rather international news or at least national news. <clears throat> and uh, I managed to get a job at the CBS News Foreign Desk after that. That would have been in about 2007. And I worked at the CBS News Foreign Desk, basically coordinating our international coverage. Um, so basically every country except the United States helping to coordinate coverage at that time. And uh, so I've kind of straddled the worlds of mass media and at the same time politics and foreign policy. So because of my intense interest in Iran, uh, around 2014, I actually even before that, I, um, I left CBS News for a while to actually run and manage this like expatriate Iranian presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. I didn't mention this before, but there's this uh, professor at Rutgers University. His name is Hushang Amir Ahmadi. And uh, this was 2012 to 2013. We ran this expatriate campaign and it ended up like it became really popular. We hosted a Ask Me Anything on Reddit that mm -hmm. was that was the top item, not just on the AMA page of Reddit, but the top item on the front page of Reddit for like three wow. hours. Yeah, there's still a bunch of articles up about it. So that like really helped. Uh, that was a huge experience for me. Like I gained a ton of experience there just on how to like how to run an online marketing campaign, how to run an international campaign. Mm -hmm. We ended up connecting with tons of people through that. Ask me anything. Tons of like activists, student groups all around the world who were then inviting us 
uh, like I got to travel to Northern Ireland. I went to Scotland. I went to the UK and we were, I went to Berkeley in California and we were speaking in front of all these student groups that had invited us, many of whom had seen us through that original AMA. And the reason that I'll just, as a side note, a reason that it was so successful is because I had written what I think is the perfect headline for my Reddit post, which was, I am running for the Iranian presidency. Ask me anything. And it just like, <laughs> it blew up. Yeah. It perfect. Blew up. We got yeah. It, perfect. So, um, so that was like my foray into politics. And I, after that, uh, I ran, the candidate has a small think tank called the American Iranian Council. So I ran that for two years. This was around the time that uh, Iran and various world powers were negotiating the nuclear deals. So that was mm. a big deal in the news. So there's a lot, I was like getting a lot of TV hits too. I would go on HuffPost Live and other outlets, like local outlets to talk about Iran a lot at that time because they needed Iran experts to talk about this stuff. So it was a really good time for me to dive into that. And at that time, I also, um, so I have done a bunch of things, but I also launched a basically an independent uh, satirical newscast all about the Middle East, kind of like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, but just about the Middle East. It was called The Mideast Show, and our, our videos are still up on YouTube. That was getting a lot of press at that time, too. I Ultimately, that didn't work out just because I couldn't raise enough money for it, and I was just spending a lot of money on it, but it was still a great learning experience, and it's helping to inform me on, in, in terms of what I'm trying to do now, uh, which I'll get into in a second. So I, was at, so, uh, I, I took a break from CBS to work on uh, this presidential campaign. Um, and then I worked, I ran the American Iranian Council. And then ultimately, honest, to be perfectly honest, it was a financial decision in that running this small think tank was just really difficult to raise money. Like we were having, we had, a, you know, our biggest fundraiser, like we, we managed to raise like $34,000, which is just not enough to run a think tank at all. So, uh, so I realized I need to kind of get back with some kind of large corporation that can pay me more money. So I applied and uh, got a job at Fox News Channel and I, was, I worked on various shows there. I worked on John Stossel's show there, which was a great experience, uh, a couple other shows there. I actually helped launch and produced uh, The Ingram Angle with Laura Ingram, which was also a great experience. Like I got tons of great contacts. And I've, you know, I've, I'm maybe uh, somewhat unique in a way in that like, I've managed to really cultivate relationships and explore very right-wing circles and very left-wing circles too. Like I haven't really had any problems working at CBS News and or going on HuffPost Live, or working for Fox News Channel, uh, which is on the right. So that, that was great. And then uh, actually, after two years of working at Fox, I just recently got an offer and left uh, to for my new job, which is where I am now, which is that I'm uh, launching a new weekly documentary series on Verizon Media, mm -hmm. um, which is great. It's going to be kind of like Vice on HBO, which will be like half hour documentaries about all different kinds of topics, politics, immigration, culture, sex, everything. Um, so I can, I can talk about that as well. But that's, that's what I'm doing now. I just started that about two months ago. And as you know, Brendan, I'm, I'm really happy with it. It's been a great change. Like it, it kind of afforded me everything that I was looking for in that motion. It was a raise. Uh, I was going from working till 11. I was on Laura Ingram's show. I was working till 11 p.m. Like, it was tough. It, was, it, was, it really was a grind. Um, and now I just like, I get to work normal hours and I, I love the people I work with as well. Uh, they're very supportive and it's just like a really uh, great working uh, atmosphere. Mm, yeah. Well, congratulations again on landing this job. And it was an honor to be a part of that journey. And I know that much more of your success came from outside the scope of our work, but I can't tell you how rewarding it is to do two coaching calls with someone over the span of a month and, you know, get their income up 40% and give them a better quality of life. So thank you for that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. 
<laughs> amazing, amazing. So quick question for you. Um, when, when a lot of people, for example, like they study undergrad finance, they go to college, and then they cut their teeth in investment banking working until 11 p.m. midnight every night. And it sounds like you did the similar, like, you know, cut your teeth experience before then transitioning to a better lifestyle type situation. Do you, are you of the camp that people should kind of find that like first military, like grind job teaches you life lessons and skills and then go to something like what you're doing? Or would you say that if you could have done it over again, you would recommend that young people try to avoid a situation like that and go right into something like what you have? Well, I think the reality, yeah, I understand your question. The reality in my industry is that you don't really have any other option. If you want to make it in like network news, you're, you're going to pretty much have to start off working weekends, holidays. Like I worked many overnight shifts when I was at CBS news, overnight shifts, meaning from I go in at midnight and get out at nine or 10 in the morning. Wow. I did that many times. It was exhausting. Like it, it beats you up and you get burned out from it eventually. Um, you know, but at the same time, like you don't really have, there's no other choice. Okay. So if you're not cut out, if you're not cut out for it, in this case, like if it's network news, let's say that you want to do, if you're not cut out for working overnights for some time, maybe consider something else. It might not be the right lifestyle for you. Like for example, you could get into producing documentaries, which is actually what I'm working on now. Um, so that, that's one way to answer that. Yep. No, that's helpful. You know, in my experience, I would say that there were a lot of things that I learned from investment banking that were important lessons and skills from having to work those hours and put in that work. But also I kind of realized that wasn't for me long term and I did make that transition. So when people ask me, sometimes I do say, you know, it could be valuable to try it out for a year and either see if it's for you or at the very least gain those skills by putting in that time. But I wanted to also come back to, you told me you had um, more experience with writing earlier in your career um, than in journalism. And I'm curious if that could be extrapolated at all to uh, my audience, who's very interested in copywriting to some degree for their businesses. A lot of people here have websites, have blog posts that they do, have email correspondence, like an email newsletter, things of that nature. I know you're more in the video realm and things are moving more and more towards video, which like right. I'm more podcast, I'm more visual, like what we're doing right now. But I do see value in being able to have good copywriting skills, being a good writer. And I was curious how you develop those skills and if there's anything you suggest to our audience to become a better writer or copywriter. Yeah. Yeah. The best thing to do if you want to become a great writer is to read. I mean, you should, you know, yep. just read a ton and like read very, don't, don't just read. Okay. So my reading method is that I don't read passively in a sense. I try to read really actively. And by that, I mean, it actually can, it's a slower process in a way because anytime I see any word that I don't know, I have to look it up. Like I've ne you know, and, and I've been doing that. I've been doing, and as a result of that, I, I have developed expansive vocabulary. And, um, I just know that like ever since I was even in college, since like 2003 or so, I would, like I would read the economist magazine and just go through that. And anytime there's any word I would look, and that was even before I had an iPhone, like, you know, so I'd have to look it up in an online or in the dictionary, you know, the dictionary. Mm -hmm. But uh, but nowadays it's so you just you know hold your finger down. Even even on Kindles now, I love the Kindle and I just look up every word and uh, and then I'll I'll try to I'll try to incorporate it. Like I'll try to incorporate it into my writing too. If there's a word that really that really you know does the job, like you never want to just shoehorn a word in there because you're like, oh look at this vocabulary word that I really like. But mm -hmm. yeah. it needs to be it needs to be motivated in a sense. But sometimes you know you can just nail like and get, and get the right word. At the same time, I don't like writing that's really convoluted. 
Um, it should sound somewhat like the uh, writer's voice, almost as though he or she is speaking. Um, so, you know, word efficiency is another thing I would definitely focus on, mm. um, especially nowadays when uh, people aren't really reading books as much. They're, you know, reading blog posts uh, and there's constant uh, clickbait distracting them from whatever it is that you're writing. So mm -hmm. one of the things I value most and I definitely strive for myself is word efficiency. If you could mm -hmm. say it in you know, five words instead of 10, go for five. Yes. I love that. I learned that in law school when, um, oh, in, yeah. my, in my first year, when the professor said, look at every word and ask yourself, is it, like, is that word necessary? Is that word necessary? And then sometimes yeah. it is, it's like, it's not a sentence without the pronoun, but there's other times where you're being way too verbose and it's just running on mm -hmm. and it's distracting. Um, my, my follow-up question to that is, um, I do a lot of communication with people. I do a lot of interviews. I coach people. So there's a lot of talking happening in my life, both me talking and my guests or clients or students or whoever. And I notice that people can go on and on or not communicate effectively verbally, which could also be a good skill, number one, with your business or just your life in general. But we have listeners and audience members who are doing Instagram lives and YouTube shows and things of that nature. And I think being able to communicate and teach effectively is also important. I'm curious how you see that carrying over potentially, maybe from your experience of producing TV shows and seeing people be effective communicators at Fox or CBS and any advice you have there. In terms of how to be a good communicator on video, I'm not, I'm not sure I understand, maybe you just repeat it. Yeah, so how to be a more, I'll, I'll try to be more effective in this communication, <laughs> but uh, how can people either be more concise, more effective, more clear, uh, get to the point better, be successful communicators, um, and based on your experience in producing successful TV shows? It's a good question. I'm not sure I have an answer for it. It probably, I mean, you know, this is uh, maybe a little trite, but it probably just takes a lot of practice. You know, like when you put someone in front, I have the experiences myself too. When you put someone in front of a camera for the first time or the second time and you have them host a podcast or a TV show or a news show or a YouTube show, whatever it is, it's nobody's a natural in this sense. You know, everyone, even, you know, the most uh, successful people, whether that's, uh, you know, at Fox or MSNBC, like they started off really small and they messed up a lot too. It's a, like when those lights go on and you've got people around you watching you this, and you know, stress starts to build up. Um, the only way to, to protect yourself from that is just, is, I think probably exposure therapy is just keep doing it and like, and battle through it. And honestly, it's something that um, I need to focus on myself too. Like, so as we've discussed, I haven't brought this up yet, but I'm working on launching my own show as well. America's world. Yeah. Talk and a little bit about cool. that. Yeah. Um, well, so it's kind of the, uh, after having launched the Mideast show in 2014, which, you know, in the end, it was not something that worked out for me in the sense, like financially it didn't work out, mm -hmm. but uh, I did learn a ton of great lessons for it. Like it was a great trial run in a sense. And I, and I really did love it. Like I had a ton of fun doing it. I was basically with my friends hosting a funny show that was interesting at the same time and talking to people and basically doing, uh, doing satire. So. Uh, what I want to do now is launch this new show on IGTV and YouTube. It's uh, also going to be somewhat satirical, and it's called America's World. That's the name of the show. Uh, and the concept here is to bring global news to an American audience. Right now, there really is no competition for that. There's no supply of this. The only show I can think of that focuses on world news uh, would be like Fareed Zakaria's GPS, Global Public Square on CNN. 
Other than that, for the most part, all of our news is domestic or it's local or it's political. It's not really international. Now, the challenge there, the reason that it's difficult to do that is because, by and large, most Americans tend not to care too much about what goes on around in the rest of the world. The question right. they'll often ask is, well, like, how does this affect me? So my solution for that problem is to make the show, like, violently about them, like, make it so much about them, like, go over the top with it in a kind of hyperbolic, satirical sense. Right. Um, that it's like, I, like, it's just obvious that we're like doing it too much. Um, that's why I'm calling it America's world. It's like a silly but awesome name because the world doesn't belong to America. Although in a sense, America is the world superpower. So in a way it kind of does. And the point I'm trying to articulate by calling it America's world and like, it's, it's kind of Stephen Colbert-ish in a way. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, the point I'm trying to make by calling it America's world is that the U.S. spends a trillion dollars a year if you add everything up to project to project its force abroad. And yep. the question I want to ask is, well, what return or what's our ROI? What return on investment are we getting on that? And shouldn't we care about that? So that's why I want to make it about Americans. Like make it about our federal tax dollars spent um, all around the world to advance our interests. So, uh, so that's kind of the motivation or the concept for the show. I yep. want them to be, and and then you know, based on my experience with the Mideast show and like the lessons I learned from that, rather than doing like, rather like for the Mideast show, I was trying to do big productions that were very labor intensive, cost intensive, uh, resource intensive. I would do like multiple locations per shoot. I want to strip that down and for this show, just do everything like as streamlined as possible so that I can create content much more efficiently. So the idea is to do two minute daily videos uh, in front of a green screen in which I'm basically saying like, welcome to America's world. Uh, let's get right into all the news that matters to you. This is what happened with uh, Putin in Ukraine today. And then Trump met with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And then Mike Pompeo uh, is in Cairo, for example, about to give a speech uh, to mm -hmm. the Muslim world, et cetera, et cetera. And try to link it to Americans and get them to, uh, to care about it. And I think that, uh, so, uh, you know, as you know, I, I have shot a draft video for it. That's, it's not quite done yet. And I'm right now in the process of building a, green screen studio in my living room, uh, which mm -hmm. is difficult, but I'm, I'm committed to getting it done and then starting to turn these videos around quickly uh, and hopefully build up an audience for it. Like I don't, you know, I'll of course expect a lot of your and anticipate a lot of your help throughout this process because I don't yep. know exactly yet how I'm going to monetize this and make this all work. But yep. uh, I need to just like get it off the ground now and, and get the video production workflow down, start getting content out there and start building subscribers. And I, I suppose eventually we'll be on some kind of like a premium model where you know, you'll get this two minutes for free. And then if you want all the analysis with this expert or whoever, it's a $5 a month subscription or, you know, it's me figuring it out in my head. Yep. No, we'll get that all to work. But I, I just, yeah. I love that idea. I love the concept. And just kind of while we're in this realm of talking about news and digesting news, uh, one of the people who has helped me a lot in my journey is a guy named Tim Ferriss who wrote the four hour work week. And he's got all these life yeah. hacks and personal development tricks. And one thing that he says, and I'm really curious your take on it, is he encourages people to try to take a news break. He says, hey, take a week off from reading the news or don't consume as much news. Do you believe in that? Do you think that news is predominantly negative? Is there a problem with our media? And what should the average person do to try to digest content because you want to be informed, but also in a way where it's not taking over your life? A lot of it is toxic, I have to say. Um, I mean, look, I've, I've worked in cable news. Uh, and there are some shows that I really like. I mean, I won't get into like specifics here, but overall it exists 
to inflame your sensibilities and keep you like glued to the TV. The same thing is true about news on the internet too. I mean, you probably know the, uh, the saying, angry people click, right? Angry mm. people click. Mm. That's the way it works. So these posts are typically made to keep you kind of angry in a way. Um, and look, I consume news. It's, it's my job. Like I consume news all day long. Um, it, it is difficult to, uh, to put it away. It's, it is something I very much so struggle with actually is like how to shut it down at some point and transition from work day, like consuming news all day, just reading and reading and transitioning from that towards like home time and sleep. And actually I will say one of the lessons that I learned recently or like hacks that I think it's not really a hack, but uh, one of the changes I made in my life that I found to be really positive is that I bought an Amazon Kindle recently. And I, I never had a Kindle up until about two weeks ago. Mm. And the reason that I like the Kindle so much is that, well, two things. First, you can read it in the dark without it, without like it hurting your eyes. The way the iPad, I do have an iPad, the way the iPad hurts your eyes. Yep. Uh, it really, it feels like a book. It feels like you have a book and you can read it in the dark. And crucially, the Kindle is the only device I have that doesn't send me notifications. So I'm not getting, you know, some BBC World News notification about a terrorist attack or whatever that's going to get me uh, excited in a negative sense, but like excited before I'm going to bed, you know? Right. Yep. Um, it's a win. And I have started also like, uh, this may not apply to all your viewers, but for me, like I primarily read nonfiction, like political science or sociology or economics, uh, history, race relations. That's all stuff that I'm very interested in and applies to the work that I do. Uh, but I am also actively trying to read fiction as well. So I'm reading this book. It's, it's fiction. It's by Chigozi Obiyama. He's a Nigerian writer. He's being lauded as like a really prominent Nigerian writer right now. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote this book called The Fisherman. Uh, and it's great. I really, I love it. So that that's one thing you could do is, is uh, you know, say, I can't say I follow this rule perfectly, but, you know, let's say after 9 p.m., you know, the devices go away. And even if, you still need a device. Make it a Kindle. The Kindle's yeah. great. It's just like a book. So I, I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah. I'm going to definitely look into that. One thing that I do that kind of gets me halfway to where you are is my phone with all the notifications, I turn that off by 9 or 10 p.m. My computer, I, I turn everything off that has pop-ups or connection to the internet. And then I have yeah. an iPad on airplane mode, which has all my books that I can read and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm really curious about this backlit, you know, better on my eyes. Oh, you don't have a Kindle? No, I don't have a Kindle. You should get a Kindle. They're they're not too expensive too. I think I think you'll like it for those, especially for for your eye for your eyes. It's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm definitely going to check it out. And just also validating your points about having something like disconnected or no pop ups sounds is really valuable for me. Um, um, yeah, and the other thing is like really, I, I so I will say I do. I'm not perfect during weekdays at night, but I really do enjoy my weekends. That's one thing that's huge. Like. Hmm. I have a lot of the jobs, as I mentioned before, that I've worked in the past, I had to work weekends, I had to work overnights, but fortunately on my current job, I'm working normal hours for the most part, which is great. And so I really do enjoy my weekends. I go hiking a lot on the weekends. I even go rollerblading on the weekends too. And like, those are great ways. Yeah. No one else is going rollerblading. I'm bringing that fad back, by the way. <laughs> Bring it back, Kayvon. Bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that's a great way to, where it's like, you don't have, you don't have, you don't need to be disconnected to your phone at that time. That's a great time to, uh, just just think um, or, you know, listen to music or just think, but oh, yeah. exercising is huge too. Like I do exercise every day. And I think that's, um, I think you, you said that Will Smith said this, which was like, 
was it run and read every day or were those the two two things that you do every day yeah yeah he said run and read and then tony robbins says leaders are readers and charlie munger buffett's number two talks a lot about reading and you mentioned that so yeah, reading and, and exercising is huge too yeah. yeah yeah it's a great will smith quote and uh, we could circle back to that. I just want to float one more quote that I heard about um, your take on, on media digestion. And then um, let's get more into like back into the press and, and other video production questions, which is um, Denzel Washington said this. And I'm curious if you think this is like a conspiracy theory or not. But he says, if you don't read the news, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. And we, I think we've already been kind of talking about this with the Tim Ferriss question, but I'm curious um, what your thoughts are on that. And if people want to genuinely be informed, do you have any specific outlets that you recommend as being more trustworthy? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would not recommend not reading the news. I would definitely recommend, I mean, if you want to be someone who has some kind of positive vision for the world, uh, you need to be informed of what's going on. That said, uh, you know, it's, Part of the problem is that because angry people click, that has incentivized the most right-wing and left-wing outlets to appeal to those people. Um, so any outlet that's going to try to do something a bit more nuanced uh, is going to run into problems because that's just not what people are consuming these days, unfortunately. So what I do is I really just read from a ton of different sources and watch a ton of different sources. Um, one of the things I would recommend too is like, you know, as much as you can, just try to do your own research too. Like I'll watch C-SPAN sometimes too. To just watch like Senate deliberations or uh, watch whatever, you know, uh, um, press conference the president is holding. Just just watch what he's saying. Watch the Democrat response to, uh, to for example, the Oval Office speech that he just gave last, last week or earlier this week. And um, try to make up your own mind about it. I mean, it's very difficult. Like the thing is, look, human beings all have our own epistemological constraints. We can't, consume truth like truth is so infinitely complex that we can't we can't get all of it we're not smart enough i'm not smart enough you're not none of us are smart enough to figure it all out and so what what newspapers do and news channels do is they basically serve as a filter right so if they it's uh, a lot of the biases take place at the level of story selection it's not so much that they lie propaganda is really is rarely in the form of a lie but rather in the form of exaggeration. So for example, which, uh, which stories are they choosing to place on uh, front page, for example, as opposed to page 20? You know, that type of thing, like you take, let's just take race relations, for example, and I'll speak generally about it. Like, well, are you gonna emphasize um, victims of one race uh, or victims of another race? Uh, and the way, you know, if you, let's say, emphasize uh, one race as primarily being uh, victimized, um, you know, you conjure up a whole different image of race relations in the country. Uh, whereas, you know, you've, you've got both sides being, being harmed. Um, and, yeah. and you could de-emphasize, de-emphasize other victims. So you know, that applies to any conflict if you want to talk about uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. Same thing. It's like, well, you know, both sides are hurting here. But if you focus on one side's victims, you're framing the narrative in a certain way where there's a victimizer in it. That's so interesting. Because, you know, I don't know yeah. if you know this, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Finish up. No, I was just going to say, so, that, so a lot of that bias takes place at the level of, of story selection mm -hmm. and emphasis. It's really, it's not about lies. It's really about emphasis. 
Yeah, no, that's so that's so interesting. And from my second trip to Israel, uh, I was fortunate to get into the West Bank and meet a lot of Palestinians and hear their side of the story. And it's like, you know, obviously, America has been so pro Israel with that alliance for so many years, that to actually hear a side that hasn't been as covered, at least in my experience, coming from a Jewish community, growing up Jewish with hearing so much more of the Israeli side to the story it was so nice to hear the other side. Obviously not to say that their side is all right and everything that happens sure. in the Gaza Strip and with Hamas is all good stuff. But it was, I, I really like that point about how the narrative is framed. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say like, those are just two examples, like Arab Israeli yeah. conflict, race relations in the United States, any issue. It's so easy. Like it's spin is actually really easy. Truth is what's complex. Truth is really difficult and it's not easily summarized too. You know, it's hard it's hard to put it to words. So um, to try to like combat, you know, this issue of bias and fake news, you know, one other thing you do is just, you know, if you can try to um, just talk, it's becoming increasingly difficult these days, but what I would love to do and I try to do myself is talk to people with opposing viewpoints. Like mm -hmm. dialogue is one of the best ways to combat it because I only know so much, right? And you have information that I don't have access to. So I want your information as quickly and efficiently as possible. Like it's quicker for me to get it from you, whatever information you know, than it is for me to read a 500 page book on it. Let's say I'd rather get your version of that. And so engaging in dialogue with people, that's why I really don't like seeing this re somewhat recent phenomenon of uh, people tending to defriend or block people who they politically disagree with. Um, um, that's, yeah. you know, ever since like the 2016 election, that has definitely happened more and more often. Uh, and I can understand the reasons for it, but at the same time, um, I think it's good. And I have to say, like, I have managed to do this pretty well, keep friends uh, across the political spectrum. Hmm. That's one of the best things you could do, really, is, like, if you're, you know, a huge Fox News fan, you should keep an MSNBC fan in your friend group. Actually, you know, here's a great example. So I, I play music, too. I play guitar. And right after work today, I'm going to play. I have a, a good friend of mine from college who's a drummer. He and I have played music together for years. And he was a producer, is and was a producer at both MSNBC and CNN. And my recent job before he was at Fox. And like, so, you know, it's just like keeping that group of friends where you're not even necessarily talking about politics. He and I play music together. Um, you know, but he's like, he's really liberal and he works at MSNBC and Fox. And that's great, you know? Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. And I feel like it's not so much as like who's on which side, but it's if both parties can be fair and reasonable and unemotional and actually just share their Tough. perspectives. Yeah, it's becoming increasingly difficult this day, especially yeah. I noticed like somehow, somehow, uh, anytime that something goes like anytime conversations, political conversations happen on Facebook and Twitter, there's like some dimension where everything becomes much more cynical and much meaner than I think people intended to be. Like I see it among yeah. my friends, you maybe notice it as well, where let's say immigration, for example, like whether we should build a border wall or not. Okay. There's a debate going on in Washington. There's a debate going on Southern border across the country. Uh, immigration is being debated. And the way I see people talk about it in person is pretty much fine. Everyone's calm. But when it goes to like Facebook comments and Twitter comments, everything just becomes so heated and I haven't really figured out exactly what, what's the cause of it yet. Mm. Uh, it seems to me like part of it is uh, you can't read anyone's tone or if someone's like yeah. joking. Um, you're also just limited by like, you know, Twitter, of course you were limited to 140 characters, 240 now, which I think has helped a bit, but still, um, you know, look, our divisions are 
deep in a sense. And I think that social media has kind of metastasized them. It's made them worse. Um, and I don't know how, uh, how to improve them. But part of it is like people do feel a threat to their identity. If you take a particular political position, um, like let's say like gay marriage in this case, for example, you know, like a lot of Christians are opposed to, to gay marriage and they have, uh, a lot of religious people, but especially Christians. Like we had that case of the, uh, the baker in Colorado, which went up to the Supreme Court. So that was, you know, based on his, what was a genuine religious belief. Um, so he objected to it. And in this case, it's like, well, if you, uh, if you're taking a genuine objection to gay marriage, uh, to, uh, activists for, uh, LGBT rights, it would, uh, they see it as an attack on their identity. So that's why I think it's so divisive too. It's not just, it's not just a policy debate. It's not just theoretical policy debate. It's seen as a attack on their identity. Mm -hmm. That's what makes having these conversations really difficult. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you a yeah. question for the listeners out there who are in my, either one of my programs or they're listening to my podcast because they want to build a personal brand on Instagram, on social media, online. And as part of that process, for example, if you want to get a verification check mark or if you want to get your word and name out there more, getting press coverage, whether it's PR, news articles, online articles, um, getting on TV shows, like even local TV can be beneficial. And as someone who's been behind the scenes, what advice do you have for someone who's looking to either build relationships with news producers or journalists yeah. as a way to get that yeah. coverage? Uh, sure, I can give you advice there. Uh, well, every show has a position called a booker. So it's not necessarily the host or the executive producer or the producers that you want to cultivate relationships with. Uh, it's really the bookers that you want to be on their good side. And actually, so some of the, I won't get into like specific names, but some of the organizations that were most effective, these are like political organizations that were the most effective at getting their people on the air. They really, I mean, they didn't stop at anything. Like what they would do is, I know of one example where around Christmas time, you know, they were sending a big gift basket with like pistachios and wine and everything to the bookers to try to cultivate these relationships with them. Hmm. Um, so that's like, that's one idea. And, and you can find that stuff on LinkedIn too. You know, if you are like, okay, I want to get on whatever this show, try and find out who the booker is um, and send them a pitch email. Also, one thing, like I've been on the receiving end of these pitch emails too. Mm -hmm. The thing is, a lot of this stuff has cultivated its own industry to it too. So, and a lot of it has been uh, automated. So I used to receive tons of emails that it was just so obvious that there was no way I was going to book. Like they were sending me things about, about content that just had nothing to do with our show whatsoever. You right. know, it just, it starts to, it just clogs your inbox. It's like, you know, I'm, I was at this time I was producing a primetime show at Fox and I was getting emails from publicists about who knows, like new jeans or something that we obviously are like a new bicycle. Like we're, of course we're not going to do that. So you have to be like pretty targeted with this stuff. Um, yeah. Find the show that, that makes sense and, and make it a very personalized pitch. Um, the best thing too is there's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario here because sure. you want to show that you have prior experience on television too. If you have clips that you can point to, that's great. Um, the other thing, if you've got a bit of money, actually, this is a great piece of advice. Like if you've got a bit of money, there are, there are people who do this professionally and they're really effective at it too. They already have those relationships with bookers. Yeah. Um, so like there's people who work, who just focus on cable news. Uh, and I used to get calls from them too. And, and they really were effective because they were doing the target. They were doing the things I'm telling you basically now they had, they were cultivating the relationship and they were doing the targeting. 
Uh, and actually, we would reach out to them sometimes. So if you could, if you could get basically get an agent, and they're not necessarily that expensive. Some of them may even be like a, they may just charge you per appearance. You know, mm-hmm. if you could get an agent, like a PR agent, that would really, really be effective because um, they'll reach out to everyone, and they and they will get you on. Um, and actually, they were so effective that I would reach out to them sometimes if I was in in a tough position, and I was like, well, okay, I need it guest who's a lawyer and fits this particular description they had the relationships that they could find uh, someone for me um yeah. so that's really effective um and and you know of course writing too like writing even you know writing does help you get on television too if you can get published in the atlantic monthly on the left or national review on the right or any you know publication um if you have something you could point to like you have a point that you want to make uh, that's going to help a lot too Mm-hmm. Yep. I love that advice because as I've been building my personal brand, I just don't, I mean, I do have the time, but I think it's a better use of my time to create content and get out there and travel and speak. And I have a publicist who has relationships with media outlets for online websites, entrepreneur forums, things of that nature that I'm working for coverage on. Um, and I could see how valuable it would be to find someone who has those TV relationships because yes, That's- you can go build it yourself, but if you don't have the time and you have a budget, why not go the other route? Hello, I'm still here. Yep. Oh, I'm... Okay, I think we, I, I have you now. Lost you for a second. Yeah, no worries. So we were just talking about the benefits of getting someone paid to help with the TV spots. Yeah, that's the best. That is the best if you can do that. Awesome. Um, so I guess just kind of as we come to a close here, uh, you did mention having an interest and experience with uh, a lot of like nonfiction and getting into some fiction as well. I was curious if there have been any books that have most influenced you, either fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend to people um, in terms of takeaways, growth, career success, personal success. Um, I will say I really like uh, this German writer Hermann Hesse a lot. Um, he wrote Siddhartha. He also mm-hmm. wrote Steppenwolf. Um, I would say reading Hesse would be great. Um, and then the political stuff, like, I mean, it might not apply to everyone, you know. Um, people have different politics. I would say, like, I do, I do really enjoy Pat Buchanan's books a lot, uh, Suicide of a Superpower. If you, I would say, honestly, I've told, I've told my friends, um, like liberals and my friends on the left, too, if they... Around 2016, a lot of people were, after the election, a lot of people were a bit confused as to how Trump would have won. A lot of, nobody expected it, right? No one really, hardly anybody expected it. And so that was the book that I was recommending to one of my friends on the left and liberals who were like shocked by it. I was like, well, I would recommend you read 2011 Pat Buchanan's Suicide of Superpower uh, because I think he talked about a lot of the issues that, uh, Trump's campaign tapped into. So for nonfiction, I'm going to pick that for now, like off the top of my head, 2011 Pat Buchanan, Suicide of Superpower. And then as for fiction, uh, I really like Herman Hesse. Mm. Uh, great recommendations. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, that's it. Those are my, those are my two. Oh, I thought you okay. So, uh, one last question I have for you is with your show that you're starting America's world, which sounds fascinating. And I'm so excited to be a part of helping you grow that is, 
I know there's going to be a lot of satire and maybe some humor involved, but if you had to like say there was a kind of a core takeaway that you want to leave your audience with, and I know that's very dynamic and will change as politics evolve, but what would you say is kind of like a key takeaway that you want to give to your audience or even people listening now in regards to how to think about the world in a better way? I would say it's that the United States is the world's indispensable nation that we have more power, more force projection power than we know what to do with, and that that force projection can be used to create a future utopia if we can harness it as a tool and use our resources intelligently, use them uh, efficiently, use them toward a world that is more uh, peaceful and prosperous. And uh, I'm not a pacifist in that sense. I'm not. My point is not that the U.S. should retract from the entire world. No, it's that the U.S. should be intelligent about how it uses its resources abroad. And it can be used to create a more peaceful and prosperous world uh, if we're smart about it. And if uh, we're not smart about it, um, you know, we could, essentially we could end up inadvertently sacrificing the 21st century to China. Um, mm. And I have not been to China. I, I believe maybe you have, but based on everything I know, uh, if I had to, I, that's not something I want to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, I went to the Great Wall. I've been to Beijing, Hong Kong. Um, wow. it's, you know, I'm sure you have a much more sophisticated take on this than me, but uh, there is heavy censorship there. Access to websites can be very limited. And that's something I was wow. never exposed to. My, I'll just tell a very quick story as we wrap up, which is uh, my first time in China, I get to Beijing and I ask my host, what's the Wi-Fi password? And I log in. And it says I'm connected, and then I go to Gmail, and it says it's you know cannot connect to server. I go to Google, connect connect to server. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go out to dinner. So I go to Google Maps, cannot connect to server. Facebook cannot, Instagram cannot. And then I'm like, dude, your Wi-Fi is not working. And he's like, go to uh, Bing or go to Yandex or go to uh, Alibaba, and they were all working. So that was my first experience with uh, websites being blocked. I've been to Iran five times, and it's a similar thing. The internet is very controlled there as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this con like with the rest of the world has got a lot of problems too. And, uh, China is, you know, a kind of a generational 21st century threat to the United States. Um, that we need to be very smart about. And I want to, I want, that's why I'm like, I don't want it to be China's world. I want it to be America's world. If I have to choose, um, can I show, can I show the logo? I have it up on my screen. I want to, uh, I want to, uh, share my screen. Can I do that with Zoom? Yeah, please do. Yeah. Just click on the green share button at the bottom of your screen. Screen share. I see stop video. Is that what I need to do first? Um, no, maybe more towards the middle. Like if you go to the center of the screen at the bottom, you see a green button. Yep. No. Oh, no. Yeah, you just turned your video. That's okay. Well, what I would say is that you could find it on Instagram. It's just a cool logo. I wanted to get people to take a look at it um, if possible. So uh, if you could pull it up, um, it's up there. I'll pull it up now in the video and where can people find what, what's the Instagram and then in general, where can people find you out of the listeners who want to hear more? America's world show on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and our website. But I would say oh, go for the Instagram America's world show. Yep. Putting it up right here. And is this the logo you were talking about? Yeah. Top left. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. So, well, Kayvon, yeah, I love it. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. You shared a lot of nuggets of wisdom, especially for people without your media background. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Thanks a lot, Brendan. Had fun.